First off, I just want to give a shout out to excellent job that Samuel did last week in bringing the word. Uh, Very, 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 very well done. So thank you, my friend. Um, If you would, open your Bibles to the 15th chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, I, I realize that, you know, there, there's kind of an elephant in the room when I continue a series in Revelation during Advent. Um, is it appropriate to preach about bowls of wrath, which is our text today, during Advent? Um, well, I, 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 I was wrestling with that myself, to be honest with you, but I have found not only justification, but actually good reason um, for doing so. You see, in the medieval church, Advent focused on preparation for the second coming of Christ rather than the first. Uh, the church focused on fasting and repentance in anticipation that the one who came in the manger would, again, um, would come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Uh, the Advent candles, which today represent hope, peace, joy, and love, as we know, during that time represented, get this, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Uh, Advent wasn't focused on the light of Christmas, but on recognizing the darkness that appears before the dawn. Uh, As one author put it, uh, Advent was a season for realism, not Christmas dreams and shopping. Uh, So, uh, our text certainly speaks about the chaos and destruction before the peace, the shalom, the completeness and peace that come in Jesus Christ. And, And so... Since our our theme is peace, it is certainly appropriate to talk about why we need peace so desperately uh, as we do that. Um, Our text is Revelations chapter 15 and 16, and for those that are worried that that would be a lot of text, actually chapter 15 is but a handful of verses, so uh, it's a shorter text than you might suspect. But if you would, read with me, and I'll be reading from the New International Version, um, chapter 15 of the book of Revelation, beginning in verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image, and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God, and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, And it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, 
Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out its bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look! I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake no earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth so tremendous was the quake the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed god remembered babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath every island fled away and the mountains could not be found from the sky huge hailstones each weighing about a hundred pounds fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we read about things here that in one way seem awfully terrible. And yet, when we discern why these things are happening, they actually seem to be just and true because they rescue and deliver the innocent. Lord, we don't have the words, the language, or even the capacity to fully comprehend Your ways. Nonetheless, You stoop to speak to us in baby talk, as it were, so that we might grasp something of Your nature. 
Help us this morning to do so more and more. Amen. Amen. Understanding God's wrath against idolatry is difficult for idolaters. And sadly, that's us. By nature, our hearts are inclined toward idolatry. And only by the grace of God do we re- are, are we in any way rescued from that. And yet, we still, you know, as Calvin said, the, the heart's an idol factory. And that just is so true about how we look at the world. Christian philosopher Stanley Hauerwas, in one of those uh, public debates that writers do, you know, they'll write something that somebody else said and critique it, and then the other one writes back in some public forum to critique what they said about them, and then they write back to critique what they said about them, and it takes a, a little while to get the argument done because everything has to be published. But it's in one of those. Uh, he was having such a debate uh, with, with one of his uh, critics, feminist Gloria Albrecht. And, and, and he said this in response at one point. He says, I'm not accusing Albrecht of willful misunderstanding. If anything, I think she has tried very hard to be a sympathetic reporter and critic. But she continues to misunderstand me precisely because she insists on reading me as saying what only someone who thinks like she thinks can and must think, I must think. Now, if you can follow that at all, you can appreciate Hauerwas greatly. <laughs> but, I like Hauerwas. But his point is, quite simply, that, that she could only conceive of him thinking the way she thinks he thinks because she had no category for thinking the way he actually thinks. That's kind of like us when it comes to God's judgment on idolatry. It seems so peculiar to us because we really don't have categories for it and a deep understanding. From our vantage point, God's wrath on human idolatry is scary, to be sure, especially when we realize that the idolaters are not all out there and the other guys are all in here, but rather the idolaters are out there and in here and here among us, each of us. We perpetually try to understand God's relationship to wrath as only someone who thinks like an idolater can think. And somehow we believe that it is how he must think. Yet if we could see the world as God sees it, if we could see that all the misery and pain we experience resulted from our idolatry, it would make a lot more sense to us. These chapters in Revelation present some challenges for us. One well-known theologian, not necessarily in our circles, but certainly well-known, condemns the book of Revelation as turning the slain lamb into the slain lamb, calling it a crime against divinity. His words are strong and regrettable. But given how Revelation has often been interpreted, they are not without cause. Understanding the doctrine of progressive revelation, that is, that God is not as clearly revealed, for instance, in the book of Genesis, in the early pages of the Bible, as He is when He makes Himself more clearly known and then eventually absolutely clearly known in Jesus Christ, Then when we arrive at the book of Revelation, it can feel a bit like the Bible did a U-turn. It's like, wait a second, I thought we left that behind. Jesus is the manifestation of who God is. Now, maybe you've never thought about these things that deeply, but those are the kinds of questions that it raises in my mind, and I 
know in some of your minds at least. Some of the images of Revelation can be disturbing, and I think that is, in fact, the intent. But we do, not, uh, or we do need to be careful, rather, how we read those images. Revelation, and I, I, if, if this is your first time in this series, I admit that some of what I say today will be a little bit difficult because I've, I've prepared for it in the previous messages. And, and so, if, if you leave here going, what... Just go back and listen to the ones that lead up to this, or at least a handful of them, and maybe that will be helpful. But one of the things we are hammering away at is this, that Revelation is not a timeline of end-time events, but a reframing of world history from beginning to end. It's not a timeline of end-time events. It's a reframing of world history from beginning to end. Its meaning is best understood if we read it as what it was, a message to seven churches in Asia Minor, and secondarily to us. About that, that's how you should read the whole Bible. I mean, not specifically as to seven churches in Asia Minor, but to its original audience first, and secondarily to us. I know people often like to say the Bible is God's love letter to you, but in fact, that's not true. The Bible is God's communication to certain people at certain times, and He intends for it to be communication to us. But if we're going to understand what it's saying to us, we have to start with what it was saying to them. And the same goes for the book of Revelation. Based on the opening prophetic messages to the seven churches, we are better to read these passages not as predictions of specific future events, but as warnings of the consequences of practicing idolatry. You may recall that in the letters to the or the so-called letters are really prophetic messages, not letters, but you have to go back in the series for that. But if, in, in those messages to the seven churches, only two were exempt from being rebuked for their idolatry in one form, fashion, or another. So idolatry was present in the churches. Empire worship, emperor worship was present in the churches. And so what we're reading about it in the the rest of the book is really targeted at the people in the churches more than it is targeted at the rest of the world. And we often miss that because we don't understand that it is the, the rest of the message to those seven churches. Not everything, like most prophetic messages in Scripture, not everything is set in stone. How people respond to God's prophetic message determines the outcome. How people respond determines the outcome, and that applies to our text today. Richard Bauckham writes in his work on Revelation this. He says, John has taken some of his contemporaries' worst experiences and worst fears of wars and natural disasters. And these were, I mean, if you think they're a real part of our lives, oh, they were a very real part of their lives. Very real. They They were not unaccustomed to armies sweeping through and just wiping everything out and If they're alive when it's all said and done, they just have to start over. So that's the world they lived in. But Bauckham, I'll continue with him. Uh, Their worst uh, experiences and worst fears uh, of wars and natural disasters. And he's blown them up to apocalyptic proportions and cast them in biblically elusive terms. The point is not to predict the sequence of events. The point is is to evoke and to explore the meaning of the divine judgment which is impending on the sinful world. What we will see today is that God is calling a 
remnant out of the world to create anew a faithful Israel out of exile. God is calling a remnant out of the world to create anew a faithful Israel out of exile. Despite everything that rails against his success, he will indeed conquer. We'll explore this under three headings, or actually four headings, I take that back. Uh, The song of a victorious remnant, the source of the seven plagues, the seven plagues in biblical context, and the seven plagues today. First one, the song of a victorious remnant. The vision begins a bit differently than the other visions we've had. You may recall that the previous vision that just ended at the end of chapter 14 in total began in chapter, uh, uh, the end of chapter 11, but chapter 12 effectively with this dragon. You know, a, the heavens are open, he sees the temple, but all of a sudden there's a dragon and there's a woman and there's this sort of war scene that goes on. And it's not until you get to the end that you have victory and, 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 and that's announced. But here we begin with the victorious multitude before the throne of God. And they sing a song of victory. Now we know they're before the throne of God from the beginning because they're standing beside the sea. And we know from chapter 4 that the sea of glass is right before the throne of God. And that will be confirmed in a moment as well. Chapter 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name they held harps given them by god and sang the song of god's servant moses and of the lamb as in every one of the scenes we've covered starting in chapter four and forward and really could probably find it in chapter one two and three but the exodus theme is present god's rescue of his people out of slavery out of bondage in, in Egypt, it's present. Now, part of that is because the people of Israel knew that God promised a, another exodus. They'd been sent into exile, and God promised that he would restore them, and he would bring them back, just like with the first exodus, he would call them out. And so, this theme is echoing this promise of restoration of God's people, Israel. The song of Moses being sung, which originally was sung where? On, on the far side of the Red Sea. After being delivered and after their enemies are drowned in the Red Sea, they stand and they sing the song of Moses, but and of the Lamb. It's adjusted. Why? Because these are followers of the Lamb. We've seen the group before. Elsewhere, they're the 144,000 in chapter 7, and in chapter 14, they uh, show up again. In chapter 7, they turn out to be Actually, not 144,000, but an uncountable multitude. He hears the number, 144,000. He hears 12,000 from each tribe. So he turns and sees what? An innumerable, mongrel multitude from every nation, tribe, language. And then, as I said, they turn up in chapter 14, but now they're virgins, which is to say what? That they... Do not commit idolatry. A key concern of Jews in the first century, and therefore Christians in the first century, is a question that that Paul, in fact, addresses in Romans 9 through 11, and you might even argue the whole book of Romans, but it's a question that's addressed throughout the New Testament, but it's specifically in Revelation. And, And that's this, God promises a remnant that would be saved out of exile. Where is it? 
there was beginning to be this sort of put up or shut up attitude toward God. You've promised this. Where is it? Revelation answers that question. And, and, and it's saying, look at the church. But see it as God sees it. And you'll see where it is. Therefore, they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb, the follower of God's Messiah, Jesus. Now, obviously there was a, a question that gnawed at them, because if God's going to rescue Israel from the nations and restore them, well, what about the ten northern tribes? They're, they've disappeared. Nobody knows where they are. And yet they held to God's promise that He would somehow bring them back. And this group of overcomers turns out to be the Israel of faith or faithfulness. And, and the only way they could be regathered, I mean, you notice the counting in chapter 7, who names all 12, actually, you know, there were 13 tribes, but all 12 of the tribes, one of them is always left out. And, and it names them, why? Because it's saying God is restoring the entire Israel. All Israel is being saved. But how? By calling Gentiles out of the nations to become that people. And um, so, we talked about that more, but I just want to highlight that. This emphasis on the Song of Moses and the Lamb is, in that song, is on God's justice. Listen to this. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your, your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, where are God's righteous acts most clearly revealed? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we'll learn later in the book, in the church as well. That leads to our second heading, the source of the seven plagues. When it, when it tells us these victories are, these victorious ones are, are standing by the sea of glass with fire, they're before the throne, but now he's going to draw our attention to this heavenly temple and he, some of the details about the heavenly temple. And we read in verse 5, After this I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. The, the tabernacle of the covenant law is literally, the words there literally are the tabernacle, you could say the tent, of the testimony. The tent of the witness. This is a word that's used throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus was the faithful witness. We're called to be faithful witnesses, faithful in our witness. Okay, it's also the word we get the word martyr from. Okay, so the tabernacle of the testimony, it is the law, like in the old covenant as they brought the tabernacle through the wilderness, it contained the Ten Commandments. The heavenly temple, I suppose we'd have to say it contains the eternal law of God. The law of Christ, if you will. But it is by that law that God judges the world. So it's appropriate that out from this temple, after noting what's there, the tabernacle of the testimony, that these bowls of wrath come because it testifies against the people. It testifies against them because they've broken it. Um, the perfect uh, eternal law testifies or stands as a witness against those who, according to chapter 11, verse 18, have destroyed the earth 
who, according to chapter 16, verse 6, we just read, have shed the blood of God's people and the prophets, and in verse 9, who refuse to glorify God, and who, in chapter 18, 3, we'll read later, uh, grew excessively rich and did not care for their brother or sister. They lived in luxury at the price of love of neighbor. And in chapter 18, also, we read that it stands as a witness against those who bought into an economic system that was built, after you work your way through a long list of luxuries, on the buying and selling of humans as merely bodies. The word translated slaves is simply the word for bodies. But that's the point. Turning human beings into a commodity to be bought and sold. And many economic systems, if not every economic system, does that at some point. The only law necessary to testify against them would be do unto others as you would have them do to you. You The the argument, I, I hear people defend the church of a couple hundred years ago, 250 years ago, or, and, and, and up to a hundred and you know, some years ago, and even closer to our present time. The, the way I hear people defend the way the church thought about slavery is, well, they, they, just, they were just products of their time. They, they just thought like the people around them. That's why they got it so wrong. I'm sorry. Do unto others as you would have them do to you has been the Christian law from the beginning. It's pretty clear. We have to ignore it in order to think otherwise. We have to ignore it. We are not to live by the current of our times. We're to live by the truth of Christ's law. According to verse 6, out of this temple, which contains that which testifies against those who break God's law, come seven angels with seven plagues, which turn out to be contained in seven bowls of wrath. How could a loving God allow such plagues to be poured on the earth? That's a fair question. I do think it's a harder dilemma that the atheist has in explaining how all the good in the world occurs. However, just as God made the world to function according to certain physical laws as we call them, like, for instance, the law of gravity, He made it to function according to moral laws. If, if a mountain climber's rope fails and they fall from a rock face and die, we don't get angry at God, at least not on a public and, and a broad level. Maybe individually people might. We don't think, how could God allow that to happen? No, God set the law of gravity into place, and frankly, it's essential for life on the planet. Without it, we would all be dead. There would be no life here. But it has consequences, too, when it's not paid attention to, so to speak. Romans 1 describes many who, though God has made himself known to them, according to Romans 1, refuse to render thanks to God and glorify him. Revelation, the book, also speaks about those who refuse to worship God. Now, back in Romans 1, Paul tells us that God hands them over to their desires and lusts, and they do what, they ought, not, what ought not to be done, And it lists a long list of sins against humanity that are there. And then it says that God's judgment on them is received in themselves. It's described as it's received in themselves the due penalty for their error. When, When we rebel against what we know to be true about God, it's like the person whose rope breaks while climbing a mountain. We receive in ourselves the due penalty for our sin. Okay. 
God is not to be blamed. We took that risk when we started climbing the mountain with the rope that breaks. And, of course, in the case of our sin and idolatry, it's a willful breaking of the rope ourselves. Well, this leads to the seven plagues. And I want to look at those under heading three in in biblical context, because I think that's essential for understanding what's going on. First off, we, we, if, if you're p- paying attention to the book of Revelation as we're going through it, you've probably noticed that this seven this and seven that and seven other things keeps coming up, right? And they all seem to be pretty bad. Pretty raunchy things that come up in these sequences of seven. Well, in fact, there are four sequences of seven, and that's worth noting. And you could actually say there are four sequences of seven plagues of sorts. Um, and as we've noted, the plagues point back to the deliverance from Egyptian slavery. But the odd thing is, is how many plagues were there in Egypt? Ten, right? There were ten. And so why seven, seven? Every time plagues, and there are plagues mentioned a lot, why not ten? Well, I think there's probably a variety of reasons, but it was common in the Old Testament after the book of Exodus and in Jewish tradition, to shorten the list of plagues in Egypt to seven. They did that by combining some and and, and leaving some out at different points, but just groups of seven, they just did that. You can see it in the book of Psalms. Um, I think it's 105, and I forget the other one that you'll see that. Psalm um, uh, 78, it, it lists them, but groups them together to make seven couplets, if you will. So, it's carrying on a tradition at a minimum, but why four sets of seven? Well, there's strong evidence to support the idea that this particular chapter that we're reading about the seven plagues, or section that we're reading about the seven plagues, is rooted in Leviticus 26. Um, After recounting all the blessings that they would receive if they walked in God's way, in Leviticus 26, it goes on to describe what will happen if they reject God's ways. And it describes that four times, God warns them if they reject his ways, that he will punish them seven times over. So four times he warns them that they will be punished seven times over if they do that. Well, Revelation um, is all about the rescue of that remnant, 144,000 from the nations of the world to the people. But the end of Leviticus 26 promises that even though if, if, if they're all scattered to the ends of the earth because they disobey God, which turns out to be what happened, that he promises he'll rescue a remnant. So again, the connection to the book of Revelation is strong, and there are numerous other reasons why we see connections to that particular chapter. It's not out of thin air, but there is a striking parallel of, of the four sets. We have the, the four um, uh, see, or the seven seals, we have the uh, seven trumpets, we have the seven thunders, which aren't named, but it's just mentioned to give you another one in the cycle so that you have four. And then, of course, the seven bowls of wrath. But how was, and and this is important, if that's true, if that connection is real, how does that reflect on how we read Revelation? I think it does, because we have to ask, how was Leviticus 26 intended to be understood? Well, it was not predictive, at least in its intent, it turned out to be predictive only because they didn't obey. They, they fell away. But its intent was to be a warning against disobedience. A warning, specifically, against idolatry. 
I think these Revelation passages are better read, not as predicting specific events in the future, but warnings against what happens when we give, it, give in to idolatry. Warning passages in Scripture are intended to turn us away from sin and back to Christ. These passages in Revelation are intended to turn us away from our idolatry and back to Christ. Now, I will acknowledge there are some things right here in the text that seem to speak of specific events, or at least we've been told that they are specific events which await us in the future. And they may well be, since warnings themselves have a way of being fulfilled when we fail to listen to those warnings. But let's look a little more closely at these specificities that I I refer to. The first one, the obvious one, is Armageddon, or as we all know it to be called, the Battle of Armageddon. We've all heard of it. Its mythical status reaches well beyond the walls of the church into the world, and it's virtually synonymous with the apocalypse itself. And yet, all we have in Scripture are these five verses that end with the the place called Armageddon. Starting in verse 12, the sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw the impure spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now that's new. Just introduced a new character we hadn't heard about. The false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out into the uh, the kings of the whole world and gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. This is Jesus now speaking in verse 15. Blessed is he who uh, is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so that as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, or literally Armageddon. Now, to be fair, there are other verses that seem to or even do correspond with this in Revelation. But this is the only place that Armageddon is mentioned by name. And we've got an entire vision of how the world is ending based on that. I'd hesitate to think that we should base such a big doctrine on such a little reference. It means, Armageddon, Mount Megiddo, which, by the way, doesn't actually exist. There is no Mount Megiddo. Har, Mount, Megiddo, Megiddon. It's a mountain of Megiddo. Um, The city of Megiddo sits on a plain, not a mountain. And it likely indicates, I think, that it's not intended as a literal location, since there is no such literal location. Megiddo was the place, the city, in the plain, the plain outside the city, is a place of many significant Old Testament battles, uh, one of which um, King Josiah dies in, he was killed in. It typifies, in, in almost every case, the standoff between the wicked and the righteous. Okay, And so I think it's representative here of that standoff between the wicked and the righteous. Um, in reading Revelation responsibly, the book, Michael Gorman says it well, quote, Armageddon is a logical setting for a symbolic battle of cosmic proportions and nothing more. I think we do well to heed that advice. Okay, but then why is a bowl of wrath poured on the great river Euphrates? We'll talk about the kings of the east in a moment because we've all heard that this is the time when a great Chinese army 
comes marching across the world and comes into Israel and destroys it, or whatever, fights Jesus and so on, which, by the way, it's not that. Um, what, what, why is this poured on the Euphrates? Well, the threat against Rome, the empire, which is called Babylon in the book of Revelation, we'll see that next week, but it comes from across the Euphrates, the eastern border of the empire, which separated them from the feared Parthian army. And that's also, by the way, in history where the original Babylon was, across the Euphrates from where they are. Okay. So they're fearing an army from the original Babylon to destroy Babylon. It's just a little interesting irony in that. Also, Isaiah prophesied the return of all Israel from exile. Not all as in every person, but both Ephraim and Judah, the northern and the southern kingdoms. That's what is meant by all. And when that happens, Isaiah says the Lord would dry up the Euphrates, Isaiah 11. John's vision captures that picture because he is saying that the work of the Lamb is the restoration of all Israel, the remnant of the faithful ones who follow him. It's the church. So this drying up of the Euphrates is part of God's plan in rescuing people from the nations of the world to restore his people, Israel. And that's why the whole section begins with these victorious ones standing before the throne. And then finally, who are these kings of the east? Well, the eastern kings likely drew to mind the historic Cyrus and successors of of him in the Persian Empire who crossed, by the way, Cyrus crossed the Euphrates and began a return of exile for Israel out of Babylon in history at this point. It's how, when they began to be returned to the land, at least the, the Jewish nation, the, the southern tribes. Um, and that's when the temple began to be rebuilt. Um, he represents others, I believe, who will act to rescue the saints by stopping whatever present-day Babylon is persecuting them. You see, even if the feared Parthian army came in to Rome in the midst of Domitian's persecution of the church, it would bring a reprieve to the church in that moment. It would bring relief to the church in many ways in that moment because of what's going on in Rome. So, the eastern kings, it's not China, Never was China. By the way, there's no Chinese army mentioned in the Bible. There's no Russia mentioned in the Bible. And there's no United States mentioned in the Bible. Can we just be clear on those things? It's not there. Okay? Um, so finally, what's, what's up with these impure spirits that look like frogs? It's, it's pretty cool visual kind of stuff, you know? I mean, <laughs> makes for great paintings, I'm sure. But, first of all, frogs were unclean, so they're unclean spirits or impure spirits, so it doubly emphasizes that point. But I think it's mostly there because frogs were a part of the Exodus plague series, and the author here, the, the visions keep reemphasizing that connection to deliverance that's going on, so I think it's just part of that connection. So, that leads us to our final section, the seven plagues today. How do these plague sequences serve as a warning to us? You know, like the seven churches, we have allowed idolatry to creep into the church today. Sanctified idolatry, no doubt, but idolatry and worship of the beast, nonetheless. I was um, 
was on my monthly Zoom call book discussion. I, I, I've mentioned it before and about a month ago, and, and uh, we're going through a book called Authentic Engagement. And uh, it's the discussions led by Mark Ryan, who's a professor um, at Covenant Seminary and the director of the Francis Schaeffer Institute in St. Louis. And he was sharing, he's from Australia, so he was sharing how the church in Australia went into a sharp decline following World War II. Prior to the war, the involvement of both men and women in the church was significant, especially men in the church was really at, at equal proportions, unlike today where it's virtually all women. It's, it's, men in the church were in strong proportion in the church. However, the churches became a primary arm of recruitment for the army uh, during World War II, even World War I, but World War II. And therefore, there was a disproportionate number of Christian men in the military than the rest of society under the banner of God and country. Taking the verse, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends, that describes Christ's sacrificial love for us. They applied it to soldiers who bear arms. After the war, because of the church's complicity with the state and the great number of Christian men who died in the war, leaving behind families without fathers and husbands, there was a great bitterness toward the church's participation with the state rhetoric, and it created a backlash. As I heard him describe it, all I could think was, oh boy, this sounds really familiar. It wasn't lost on me that we have the same conditions in the church today, American Evangelical Church. It's easy to find churches which have wrapped the mission of the church up with saving our country. Listen closely. The Roman Empire has come and gone, and the mission of the church has not changed. The British Empire has come and gone, and the mission of the church has not changed. America has come and will go one day, and the mission of the church will not change. The church in Germany, when Hitler came to power, because they lived in what they thought was a Christian nation, they had only learned one way to relate to government, and that was Romans 13. Submit to the governing authorities. That was the only paradigm they had. And as a consequence, they embraced Hitler. And I don't think I need to describe the outcome. The church became heretical at large. They were obviously under Bart and Bonhoeffer and others, exceptions to that, but that was the exception, not the rule. They needed a paradigm based on the book of Revelation as well, and the rest of Scripture as well. We can't have as our only way of engaging politics biblically as Christians the paradigm of Romans 13. We, we need to have that, to be sure. And we also need to understand that in Romans 13, there were no chapter marks in the book of Romans originally. And so, if you just read it and following what comes, it's actually an example of how to overcome evil with good. So that does put a little different twist on it than how we normally hear it. But beside that, we need the book of Revelation. We need ways to understand that there's a beast in this world. And that we don't, actually, that to, faith, to be faithful to the Lamb, at times we're called to live in rebellion against the beast. And it will be costly. Charles Stroy, Stroyser, I, I can't say his last name, 
Anyway, S-T-R-O-Z-I-E-R. He writes this, um, that the Civil War was the first time in our history that there was virtually a unanimous feeling among northern ministers that the war was hastening the day of the Lord and was a climactic test of the Redeemer nation and its millennial role. One prominent evangelical preacher speaking at Lincoln's funeral on Easter of 1865 wrote, quote, The great battle of Gog and Magog is being fought on the gory field of Armageddon, which is the American Republic. A contest between freedom and oppression, liberty and slavery, light and darkness. And oh, how that conflict has raged during the past four years. Now, that sort of literalism uh, transferred to the United States is not good, to be sure. But it doesn't mean that there is no application, either. Many thought that the end of the world was at hand in the Civil War, and of course, about every ten years, there's some other reason why the world's end is at hand today. I think Lincoln himself understood at some level, maybe more than many Christians do, because Lincoln himself, at least as far as we know, was not a Christian. Now, he, I can't say what he did in his privacy in his last days, I don't know. But as far as we know, Lincoln was not a Christian. Um, he, he was, in my mind, the best president we've ever had, but that's another discussion. Um, but he understood something about how wrath works in the world. In his second inaugural address, at a time when fears concerning the, the, the endless bloodshed of the Civil War were f- f- right in everybody's face, he said this, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said, so, so still it must be said, quote, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. By the way, just to be clear, he applied that to both north and south because he understood the, the guilt of both sides in the slavery issue. How do we guard against political idolatry? Well, not enough time today to cover that, but I will give you some some pointers. How's that? Democracy is not what will bring ultimate peace and justice to the world. It is the government resting on the shoulders of Jesus, God's good promised king. Capitalism is not what will bring ultimate peace and prosperity to the world. It is the government resting on the shoulders of Jesus, God's good promised king. Republicans... Democrats, libertarians, or independents in office is not what will bring peace, justice, and prosperity to the world. It is the government resting on the shoulders of Jesus, God's good, promised king. So if you want to know what the mission of the church is, it has nothing to do with democracy, capitalism, Republicans, Democrats, libertarians, or independents. It has everything to do with spreading the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, God's good, promised king. And putting our hope there and there alone. There are plenty today who think God is dead. God won't do anything about all the wickedness in the world. Revelation declares, oh yes, he will. 
And on that day, neither your silver or gold, your bank retirement savings or your paid-off house, nor all your scientific reasoning will have any value. The, the book of Revelation puts the entire spectrum of human folly on display. And we gather on Sundays like this to practice the, the, and to train ourselves for, to live for that day. To, to practice taking the long view in preparation for His coming. Just one last thought as we get ready to dismiss and go out to a baptism. James K.A. Smith interacting with Augustine. He points to an existential problem with idolatry. He says, Idolatry is an exercise in futility. A penchant that ends in profound dissatisfaction and unhappiness. In idolatry, we are enjoying what we were supposed to be using. We are treating as ultimate what is only penultimate. We are heaping infinite, immortal expectations on created things that will pass away. We are settling on some aspect of the creation rather than being referred through it to its creator. Augustine explains it this way. Loving something other than God is like loving it too much. Loving something other than God too much is like falling in love with a boat rather than the destination it's bringing you to. The problem is that the boat won't last forever. It will sooner or later begin to make you feel claustrophobic. Your heart was built for another shore. Listen, brothers and sisters, our hearts were built for another shore. All our idolatries, they lead us to disappointment, dissatisfaction, emptiness. What are the boats that you have loved instead of the destination? Maybe it's a country, a way of life, an economy, or a person, a sin, something else. What are those things that you have loved more than God who is our destination? Revelation is a call to repentance and a warning against not repenting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Do a work in our hearts. Cleanse us from our idolatries. Turn our hearts toward you. In Jesus' name, amen.